0: Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom he gave, you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since the the disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus said to him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I have said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus has spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. And let us pray. Father, as we reflect on the night and the morning of these events, may we truly observe them, learn from them, and go forth in the power of them. In Jesus name, we pray. Amen. Well welcome again to Jacksonville Presbyterian Church as we continue our sermon series in the Gospel of John and over the last several weeks we've uh, looked at the upper room discourse, everything that happened in the upper room on that uh, Thursday that we now call Monday Thursday as Jesus prepared himself his disciples and even us for the events of the cross with both its earthly effects and its eternal significance this week we begin to think together about Jesus' hour the hour that has finally come the time of Jesus triumph at the cross that would be uh, that would come after the betrayal Of Judas, the denial of Peter, and the various trials by the religious and civil authorities. At first glance, it would appear that this is the moment where everything is going wrong. And yet, in reality, it's where everything is being put right. So today, as I say, we examine the hours, the late hours of Thursday evening into the early hours of Friday morning. Typically, we think of these on Monday, Thursday and Good Friday. But the thing is, we tend to sometimes jump over these particular events because we think of the Last Supper. And then we think of the crucifixion. And so in order to get a full picture, we're going to dive in to these events today to really get a full insight. As John gives us, as I said before and I said last week, you'll be glad to hear the title for the message stayed the same from last week to this week, that is about betrayal, denial, trial, and triumph. Now, in order to get a real full account of the Garden of Gethsemane, you need to read the other Gospels. Because in them, you hear of Jesus' time of prayer with his Father, of his anguish that he is suffering and going through as he prepares to do his father's will, as he thinks about the cup that is going to be before him, and even asks if there be another way that this cup may pass from me. But over and above everything, he is willing and he is obedient even to the point of death. Now, the fact that John leaves a lot of that detail out doesn't mean it didn't happen, doesn't mean it isn't important, and he didn't want us to hear about it, but it means that he has a slightly different focus as he presents Jesus in these moments. He really is presenting Jesus and his determination, his triumph. At the moment, at every moment, Jesus is composed. He's eloquent in his words. And he's resolutely set upon the cross and everything that that means. Knowing the agony that it would be to carry the sin of the world, to become sin for us. Because that's the purpose for which he had come. And we see this running throughout every chapter and verse of John's gospel from verse 1 of chapter 1 all the way through to the end of chapter twenty. One, And by the time John is writing his gospel, the other gospels have been written, they've been starting to be circulating, and so John is probably aware of them, what they say, and so he has a slightly different, as I say, focus. But no, no matter what, he is writing the very words of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that we have the whole gospel of Christ. So let's dive in to chapter 18, and as I say, the title of the message is, today being uh, betrayal, denial, trial, and triumph. So we're going to look at betrayal, denial, and trial. Triumph is weaved into all of those. Each time we're going to see the triumph amidst uh, them. So the betrayal, point one. Well, it takes place in verses one to 11. But before we get to a detailed description of the betrayal, we can see the triumph is there even in the setup, in verses one to three. When Jesus spoke in these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. If you know what's going to happen, if you know you're going to be betrayed and arrested and all those things, if you were trying to avoid that, would you go to the very place that your betrayer knew you would be going to? Possibly not. And yet Jesus does exactly that. He goes to the garden. It wasn't a new place. This was a place that uh, Jesus and his disciples hung out in every time they went to Jerusalem. It's believed that it belonged to uh, a friend, it belonged to somebody with some wealth, and the, a key had been possibly even given to Jesus and said, use this garden anytime you like. It was a small, gated uh, garden from what we have been led to believe. And if you've had the opportunity to go to Israel, you will be taken to uh, a garden of this nature. And it may not be the exact one, but it's going to be one very similar to, uh, to the one that we hear of in our reading Today, I was fortunate to do just that, and it was one of the most impactful moments of my time in Israel 25 years ago. Small garden, smaller than you would imagine, perhaps. But the trees there, when I was there 25 years ago, were already over 2,000 years old. They might not be the particular trees that Jesus was amongst that night, but they would have been very, very similar indeed. And the important thing for us to note is that, Jesus wasn't hiding amongst these trees in the garden. He was very much there to face his betrayer and to, in many ways, hand himself over. His triumph is not uh, in so much that he was betrayed, but that in he gave himself in this way. But what it does do for us, I believe, is that it gives us a good example of how to interact with somebody who betrays us. Rather than shy away and hide, we need to be prepared to stand and face them and hopefully through honest interaction have an opportunity to witness to the truth in the situation that we find ourselves. It can be hard to do this. By its very nature, in order for somebody to betray us, they have to be somebody that we have allowed to be very close to us. Somebody who has been let into our confidence, into a deep relationship with us. If you've been betrayed, and I'm sure many of you have been in various ways over the years, it can be an incredibly deep wound. And I'm not trying to belittle that in any way, shape, or form, but I think that we are encouraged here that there is triumph amidst those situations. If we involve God in the process, then restoration can come, and it can be equally life-changing for all of those involved. It may not always restore the relationship, and in many ways, perhaps it's not meant to. But what it will enable is for bitterness not to form, not to take hold. And perhaps the wound will not be as deep for as long in our lives. Now, notice there's no mention of a kiss from Judas. Again, this isn't that it didn't happen, but that uh, John wishes to make a different emphasis here on the events that took place That night. What he does tell us is that Judas had rounded up uh, not just a couple of officers of the law, (laughs) not just one or two people. He had a lot of people with him. And the language tells us this the band of soldiers refers to the Roman word cohort. And a cohort of Roman soldiers at that time was a tenth of a legion. So that was somewhere approaching five men. Now, it's very unlikely he actually had 500 men. The word is used there to give the impression that it is a lot. And scholars believe it's somewhere between 15 and 25 soldiers with Judas. And then you've got officers from the chief priests, and you've got some Pharisees, and you've got some people that undoubtedly had heard what was happening and couldn't help but go with. So it's probably at least about 50 people that have come to arrest one man with possibly 11 fairly frightened young men that might be there to defend him. But rather than let a fight ensue, Jesus takes control. And in some ways, as I said, rather than being betrayed, he hands himself over. Verses 4 to 9. And Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to him, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And Jesus said to them, I am he. They drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Jesus knew very clearly what this betrayal would lead to. He would be arrested, he would be tried, he would be found guilty, even though he was innocent, and he would be murdered. He wasn't going to get off with a warning. And his triumph is running throughout his words and his actions here. He's very deliberately, and noticed three times, using the phrase, I am he. Let's not lose sight of the fact that I am is the personal name of God. Jesus is doing more than saying, I'm the one you're looking for. He's saying, I'm God. He's pronouncing his divinity. And he's fully pointing to the fact that his betrayal and everything that would follow would not lead to eternal death, but eternal life. Again, it's not understood at the time. We see it in hindsight. But there is a physical reaction that night. You notice it? Do you think about that scene? They hear, I am he, and what happens? They step back and they fall to the ground. Now, before anybody gets an image of something from Star Wars where somebody's using force lightning or something like that, it's not the case. But it is a reaction to Christ's divinity. But notice also, I don't know about you, but if somebody was coming to arrest me and they fell to the ground, what might I do? What might you do? He doesn't, he stands his ground. He waits for them to get back up because it only lasts a moment and continues to say, yes, I am the one. He's basically saying, take me away. Again, Jesus is also protecting his disciples in this because he says, take me, I'm the one you want, leave them. We thought last week, the word in action, protecting his disciples, all those that were given to him. Not one was lost except for Judas, who is clearly already on the other side. Finally, in betrayal, we see the distinction drawn between Peter and Judas. This is a distinction that's going to come again uh, later on in another way. But right now, we've got Peter and Judas. We've got Peter who draws a sword to defend Jesus. That's misguided as perhaps it was. And you've got Judas who has come with a bunch of people, with a bunch of swords and weapons against Jesus. Here again, we see Jesus' triumph because he knows his Father's will is not in this circumstance to use violence, but to trust in the way of suffering that is necessary in order to save the lives of others, that he would drink the cup of God's wrath poured out at the cross so that we would not have to. Well, while we do not have to drink that particular cup, There are occasions when we will have to make decisions to follow God and his word. And it might mean pain and it might mean suffering in this life for the sake of others. Even when there appears to be a viable, easier option. Even when there appears to be a way out, we're to stand our ground and trust God. And to share in Jesus' triumph. Next, we see denial and trial. Now, denial and trial are all wrapped up together. So we're going to be jumping around. And, and so I decided we're going to jump around and focus on denial. And then we're going to go to trial. Here we see that Jesus' triumph is partly, this is part, point two, denial. Um, his triumph is really in the fact, partly in the fact that he knew this was going to happen. He predicted this very clearly. He said to Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crow. Look down at verses 15 and 16. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Now, at this moment, in this narrative you, you know you're going to remember that Peter denies Jesus. That's the main point that you're going to remember. What we don't tend to remember is the fact that Peter went with Jesus. Even at this moment, even though he's about to deny him, he wants to be there, he wants to be close, he wants to be near to Jesus. Unlike the other nine or ten disciples who've already uh, fled for fear of their lives, and I think this is really important for us to realize, even in the difficult moments, especially perhaps, we need to be near to Jesus and we need to be identifying with him. Now, I say eight, uh, I say nine or ten other disciples because, obviously, as we know, Judas is not around. <laughs> but uh, there is a little bit of debate on who the another disciple is. Some think it might have been Nicodemus. Some think it might have been Joseph of Arimathea because it needed to be somebody who was known to the high priest, who was known well enough that he would have access into the courtyard. Most of us believe, scholars believe, that it was, uh, it was John. Uh, John the, the disciple. And there are various reasons about because of the business he was in, he was known to the high priest, all these sort of things. But regardless of who it is, he comes back and he gets Peter in to the courtyard. And as he does, here's the first denial. Take a look down at verses 17 and 18. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of, his, of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Now, it really stuck out to me this week as I was uh, studying afresh again this passage that at this moment, this first denial of Peter, really, you know, there isn't much cost to him. There isn't much risk to him at this particular point. And the reason I say that is because if we realize that the, uh, the other disciple is known to the servant girl, she knows that he's a, a disciple of Jesus, what would it matter if Peter was as well? on some level. How many times are we put in a similar situation? Just like Peter, Peter here is is really denying Jesus because it's a fear of disappointing somebody, of somebody else's opinion of him, perhaps. And I think that we go through the same thing as well. We We're fearful of disappointing someone, and so we change what we think or we feel or what we present of ourselves because we don't want to cause offense, and rightly so. We don't want to offend people, but at the same time, there's a line that we can cross if we take this too far, and we can even compromise our faith if we're not careful. Now, as I say, it doesn't mean we intend to be offensive in the way we share our faith, but we need to do so openly and honestly And especially when we're given opportunity, somebody asks. And you never know, they might be receptive if we're gentle but firm and convinced in our faith. Okay, let's jump down to verses 25 and 27. We'll see the other two denials as we're thinking of denial right here. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and once a rooster crowed. Again, for fear of disappointing others, of other, pe- other people's opinions of him, he denies knowing Jesus. But here you can see it's growing because now there's a fear of what will happen to me if they find out. I'm one of Jesus' disciples. And if they do convict Jesus, are they going to then convict me? So all of these things are running through his head. So he's denying not only knowledge of who Jesus is or that he's followed him, but he's denying his faith and trust in him as well. Even when one of them says, I saw you in the garden. I'm a relative. You know, this is a relative of Malchus that Peter had cut the ear off Malchus, right? Okay, crazy example here, but it came to me. Imagine... You are, you've just done your weekly shopping in Fred Myers, you've come out with your shopping, you've got into your car, you've gone home, and the next day somebody says to you, oh, I saw you coming out of Fred Myers doing your shopping, I didn't know you shopped there. To which you reply, oh no, I never go there, I only ever shop in Thunderbird. Just imagine. I know, crazy example, right? But we can do the same thing with our faith if we're not careful as well. Now, Jesus' triumph comes through clearly during Peter's denial. Not only does he predict it, and it's now come true, it shows his divinity, but uh, Peter's denial leads not to Peter ultimately turning away from Jesus. It it comes back, doesn't it, in, in, in later chapters for an opportunity for Peter to turn back, to realize what he has done, to seek forgiveness, to be forgiven by Christ The triumph of all of this is that Jesus, throughout of all of it, is changing lives. Again, the comparison between Peter and Judas. Judas is remorseful of what he's done, but he doesn't turn to Christ. Peter is, and he does. I've got a great illustration about that, but I'm going to save it just in case I end up preaching those messages later on uh, in August. One thing I want to assure you before we leave denial is, if you have denied Christ you still have time to turn to him. That's the assurance. That's the comfort. And that's the triumph. Finally, trial. I kept mistyping trial as trail. Anybody else done that? It's really annoying, you know, you type a word. If you type a word completely wrong, it comes up in red, you know you've done it. If you typed it wrong, but it's actually a word, it doesn't tell you, right? So I had to go back through and change all of these ones where I said trial, uh, as trail. But the thing is, really, Jesus' trials are a bit of a trail because he's traipsed from one place to the next, to the next, back and forth, back and forth, even to one that John doesn't really mention that much about. So firstly, he is taken to Annas, the high priest's father-in-law, verses 12 to 13. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas. Well, he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, Annas had actually been high priest years before. And when the Romans came in, they, uh, they changed the rules. No longer were you high priest for the rest of your life uh, serving. You, you had a term. And also, they'd removed Annas because of corruption charges against him. And now, his son-in-law, um, Caiaphas, was the high priest... But let's be honest about this. It's the same happens today. Annas was actually the power behind the throne, if you want to coin a phrase, right? He's the head of one of the most powerful, influential priestly families. And so no wonder they take him, they take Jesus to Annas first. And really and truly, Annas was involved heavily in the plot to kill uh, Jesus. So there are many worldly motives there are many motives involved in the plot against Jesus. They're religious, they're financial, they're political, they're personal. And the reality, again, is the triumph is Jesus was indeed turning the world right side up. Still today, I believe that the opposition to Jesus comes from one main place in people's lives. It comes from a place of, I don't want to change the way I act. I don't want to change the way I, be- I behave Because I'm happy doing the things I'm doing, even when I know they're wrong. How does that affect your life? Do you have sympathy with that position in some ways? Are there areas of your life that you haven't fully turned over to Jesus? Don't delay any longer, but know his love for you, that he was prepared to be tried, found guilty, and die so that you don't have to live that way. You can live the way God intended you to live. For that's his purpose, and we see it clearly. Verse 14, interesting, we need to note it really quickly here. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. If we look back uh, to John 11, 49 to 53, this is this incident when Caiaphas was the high priest, unwittingly to him, but uh, totally known to God, that this prophecy was was said. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into, into one the children of God who are scattered abroad so that from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. They had one idea of what that meant, and God had another, right? Well, the trial continues, and we're, we're into trial here. Um, it continues in verses 19 to 24. It would appear that Annas is still being referred to as high priest, even though he isn't the current serving high priest, and... Uh, Because it's not until verse 24 that you see Jesus is actually sent to the high priest that year, which is Caiaphas. So if you like, this is a bit of pre-court questioning. High priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples, his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues, in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what 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 I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now we learn lots from that interaction. The Jewish law did not require people to give witness against themselves. And yet this is exactly what Annas is doing. He's asking very leading, very devious questions. And Jesus simply replies and points him back towards the way a trial should be going. That he has taught and he has been openly done so for all to hear. And really, in order for a fair trial to be held, for a trial that is supposed to be the way it is, they would need to go and find witnesses. Ask the people who heard what Jesus has said. It's true today when we look to Jesus' his teaching, we are called to be those witnesses. If you're a believer, you are to share what you've learned of Jesus from his word, from what you understand of his teaching. The Holy Spirit will enlighten your hearts and your minds and those you are speaking to and sharing with because there is no extra secret teaching that just some people know. Everything, all of Jesus' words are right here in Scripture And that's so important. He has clearly and openly shown himself and taught everything we need to know in order to know him. For those who are not believers, as I say, it's still the same. You can still read of him, his word, his truth, his teaching, who he is, his purpose, his plan. Everything is there presented in the Gospels. And as you read those, you realize the whole of Scripture is there for exactly the same purpose, to reveal Christ and who he is. Paul puts it a lot better than I do. And uh, I want to share with you really quickly, Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Description of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, where thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities For his trouble, Jesus is slapped. And you can't help but think of Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, this does not mean, as some have interpreted, that you're supposed to just let somebody beat you up and abuse you and and, uh, treat you badly. What it does mean is it allows us the opportunity to stand our ground without retaliation of personal abuse, without striking back. Anna soon comes to the realization, he's not getting anywhere. So he sends Jesus to Caiaphas, just a few yards away, possibly across the high priest's courtyard. And John, instead of giving the detail of that uh, trial, takes this opportunity to allow us to Think about the reality that Peter is out in the courtyard. Jesus is crossing the courtyard. You know, we've seen it in movies as well. It's been interpreted in many ways. But just that moment, I think, probably really did happen where Peter and Jesus see one another just as Peter is denying him for the third time. And he realizes what he's done. He runs out in tears. There's also a lot to realize that... uh, This was a complete miscarriage of justice. Even from documents uh, a few years later, we see that the practices of the religious courts and the civil courts meant that they were doing lots of things they shouldn't be doing. They weren't supposed to meet at night. They weren't supposed to declare the death penalty on the day of the trial. We know from the other Gospels there were false witnesses, and Jesus was exposed to blows from attendance at the trials. It was also illegal for the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, the the Jewish court, to meet for a capital case on the eve of a Sabbath or a feast day. And we're in the middle of Passover right now. And the fact that Jesus is completely innocent as well. All of that to say that the triumph of Jesus is despite all of this, despite all the legal technicalities that he could have got out of this trial and be set free just by pointing them out, He willingly submits to them. John moves us quickly now onto involving the Romans, verses 28 to 32. And I'll let you read those at home. But really, it's beginning to involve Pilate. And we'll look more in detail at the trial before Pilate next week. But it's enough to note for now that the religious authorities, because they can't do what they want to do, they get somebody else to do it for them. They rope in, the religious, uh, they rope in uh, Pilate and the Roman authorities so that not only they get a death sentence, but they get a death sentence imposed quickly. And it's done for them. Their dirty work is done for them. And the triumph here belongs to Jesus. Because if he'd been condemned by the religious authorities, he would have been stoned to death. Being convicted by the Roman authorities means he would go to a cross. Even in this, it is Jesus' triumph that the cross would become an instrument of sacrifice and salvation and the defeat of the evil one. And that resurrection not only takes place for Jesus, but takes place for us as believers in him. That any who will confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead will be saved. And so we rejoice that through betrayal, denial, and trial. Jesus is the one who triumphs. To his name be the glory, the honor, and the praise now and forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you and praise you for your triumph through all of these circumstances and situations. May we never ever lose sight of that amidst all the things that we go through each and every day. That you are beside us and with us through the Holy Spirit person of Christ, and you are our Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.